We'll hear argument next in Georgia versus uh, Randolph. Mr. Smith. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the question presented in this case is whether one occupant can give law enforcement valid consent to search the common areas of a premises shared with another, even though another occupant is present and objects to the search. The State of Georgia submits that the answer to this case is a resounding yes. It is reasonable to recognize that a person who satisfies Matlock's definition of common authority, that is, a definition that is not based upon property law concepts, but one who has mutual use of property by virtue of having joint access or control for most purposes, can give consent for a search of that premises in his or her own right. Do we look to what's socially acceptable? Is there some language to that effect in some of our cases? There has been some of that in some of the prior cases, Your Honor, that you do look to social norms. You've also Do you sim- think it is the norm that if there are co-inhabitants of a house or apartment, that it's okay uh, to let a stranger in against the express wishes of your um, spouse or co-inhabitant? I, I think that is. Think pro- that's socially acceptable. I think it is. I think it is common, Your Honor, as much as one would like to think. Well, it might be common, but I'm not sure that's an acceptable kind of <laughs> performance. Well, I think, Your Honor, we we have what we have called either reduced expectation of privacy or a limited expectation of privacy or what we call a shared expectation of privacy by making the decision uh, long before police appear at the door to share this premises with someone. And by what, that decision, what if the spouse had put a sign up, no police allowed here? I, I don't think that even as, as in one could ensure <laughs> that the spouse would honor the other person's wishes. I think this case is here to give some um, substance to the recognition in Matlock, the ability of the co-tenant to consent in his or her own right. What, what, what about the extent of the search? Uh, can the wife say it's okay for you to come in and you can look in my husband's top drawer? I think, Your Honor, that would be a question of fact under the circumstances to see whether the husband has uh, exhibited some exclusive use of that drawer or whether the facts would demonstrate that she put socks in there for him, she puts well, notes in the, there the for him. How's the policeman supposed to know that? Well, I think uh, looking, we measure what is reasonable on the part of police by looking to what they know. And Rodriguez made very clear one does, a policeman doesn't simply accept every invitation to enter. If there's some ambiguity or some uncertainty, the policeman has a duty to inquire. And I think looking under the facts of this particular case is a good example. You have police who were called to the marital home of Mr. and Mrs. Randolph. Uh, it arose out of a domestic dispute because Mr. Randolph had absconded with the couple's child. The officer, this was a small town, the officer knew Mr. Randolph because Mr. Randolph was a local attorney. The officer knew that Ms. Who, who the wife was, and he knew this was the couple's home. Um, when he got there in talking with the wife, Mr. Randolph was off with the child, hasn't returned to the residence. Uh, he learned that they had been having some problems, uh, but in looking at the two conversations that ensued, uh, the policeman learned that despite the problems, she was back, she was living there, uh, there was no separation. I thought she said she came to collect her belongings. 
Uh, it doesn't sound like she's intending to stay very long. She did not. She did not relay that to the officer. That came from Mr. Randolph in his testimony at the suppression hearing. All but isn't it relevant what the status of the person is? Someone might not know. The police might not know that someone on the premises is a temporary visitor. Well, Your Honor, and I think that looking at the tenor of the conversations, that is exactly what this officer ascertained. He knew that she was there. They had been living there. Um, She was back. Uh, She had been on a visit. She did not tell him they were separated. She did not tell him she she was only there. She called the police, didn't she? She called the police to come. She called the police. And what we have more importantly is a fact-finding by the trial court that she, in fact, had common authority to give consent to search. And is that — is there any issue about that here? No, In other words, I, I thought the issue was whether uh, his statement, in effect, vetoed whatever — for Fourth Amendment purposes, whatever permission might have been given. But as, as I, underst- I understood that there was no question uh, — what is it, under Rodriguez, at least uh, — of, of her authority uh, facially to, to admit the police to the places that they went. That, that is our position, Your Honor. I think there's been some question raised by the respondent in his brief trying to challenge both um, her authority over the actual bedroom itself, which is an issue that wasn't raised below. And there had been an argument raised uh, in the appellate uh, court we, about whether she had abandoned uh, the property. But the, the trouble of this is really getting pretty far from what I think is, is really the key question in the, in the case. Matlock is decided, and Matlock said it referred to the risk that a joint occupant undertakes the risk of inability to control access during one's absence. So the scene in Matlock is one occupant is there, the other is absent, and the one who is absent assumes the risk that the one who was there will exercise control. Matlock doesn't speak to the two people who are in disagreement situation. That, that is correct, Your Honor, as to not addressing this factual uh, situation. But I would uh, disagree that Matlock simply only spoke to an absent, non-consenting defendant. Well, what if we think it does? Because that's how I read it, too, that Matlock governs where one of the people is absent. And we have a situation that's different here. Now what rule do we look to? And I think you look to whether she has common authority over the premises in, his, in her on right. Why? Even Why? when even when the husband is physically present and says no? Yes, Your Honor, because first of all, you said in Rodriguez, the Constitution does not guarantee that a search only with the defendant's consent will occur. Your Honor said that only a search you, you that is unreasonable. You think the officers had um, sufficient grounds to get a warrant here for a search? They ultimately did, Your Honor, but that consideration of of getting a warrant was also at play in in Matlock and I think in Rodriguez. And the point is, if one has valid consent, you don't have to get a warrant. Well, that's the issue. Is it valid consent when the co-owner, the husband, is there and says, no, you don't? Well, Your Honor, I think we come back to the fact that he does not have a reasonable expectation of absolute or unequivocal control. Well, I guess why, that, why not? That, that I, depends on, on what we say. I'm frankly still somewhat surprised at your answer to Justice O'Connor indicating that this happens all the time, where there are two occupants and one expressly says you can't come in, they do anyway. But leaving that aside, uh, 
it, 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 it seems to me that most of the considerations that would impel a decision in your favor can be answered under other doctrines. If there's cocaine that's being used and maybe destroyed, there's exigent circumstances. I don't see the necessity for the rule that, that you propose. Well, I think, Your Honor, it's, its ability, if, if we're going to have consent and if we're going to have a third-party consent rule, then this is an issue that is going to have to be resolved. You're talking okay. about reasonable expectations, I suppose, here. Yes, Your Honor. Why do you assume that, that it is the reasonable expectation of two people who have uh, who are living together in, on, in, in uh, uh, common premises that where one of them wants somebody to come in and the other one does not want somebody to come in, uh, the person may come in. I would think that the normal assumption is just the opposite, that uh, where, uh, where one wants somebody excluded, that person will be excluded. Well, I, I think in the uh, morning case that was cited in the brief, they realize one can always hope that the other will accede to one's wishes. But this is the, the dynamics of, of personal behavior, and I think it comes from uh, an, an almost subliminal uh, assertion that the person who is saying no does, in fact, have absolute authority in over ma- that shared premises. In that, Matlock, that's out of sync. In Matlock, did the, did the absent person say no? He was he, it, he was silent. He had been arrested. So on you, the you don't even have in Matlock a situation where you know that one of the parties didn't want entry. You don't know that. You, there was one party there, and that party said, "Okay, come in," and the other party said, "Well, if I had been consulted, I would have said no or whatever." But, uh, well, in, and even in that situation, Matlock, the the reference to the absent non-consenting defendant was in a paragraph where the court had talked about how it had reserved in Amos, the Amos case, the question of whether a wife could waive her husband's uh, rights. And then you had decided the Frazier case, and that was what was described as the non-consenting absent co-defendant in which two cousins had shared the use of a duffel bag, and the defendant had uh, left the duffel bag with the cousin, the cousin and his mother gave consent for the search. And it simply was not that the defendant was not present, but this court found there was mutual use of that bag that gave the cousin the authority to consent. And then the court readily rejected Fraser's arguments that, well, the cousin could only use one compartment of the duffel bag, and you said you wouldn't get into such metaphysical distinctions. Ms. But Ms. Smith, may I? Uh, your time is getting short, and I want to get clear on one thing. As I understand it, your argument is not an argument that the husband in this case lost an expectation of privacy. You are not arguing that he has no right to object. Am I correct on that? Uh, I think, Your Honor, we had called it okay, a, a, a reduced... If, if that is correct, then your whole argument rests on the fact that although he has and may assert an expectation of privacy, that is irrelevant to the right of his wife to let people, including the police, come into an area which is under her control as well as his. Is that it? Yes, Your Honor, okay. that is. And, and I think looking at Justice Stevens' dissent in Rodriguez, there is that recognition of when you make the decision to share premises with another, you have lost 
the expectation of exclusive or absolute control. But your expectation, this is what I'm trying to get at, your expectation is not what governs. You concede, as I understand it, that he still had an expectation in the sense that he could assert a right of privacy. He can litigate this case. He has standing. Yes, Your Honor. But, but that his expectation is irrelevant to the fact that the wife in this case, we assume, had the right to admit them to an area which was under her control as well as his. Is, have I got it correct? Yes, Your Honor, I think so. I think that his, his expectation is unreasonable, and we would urge the Court uh, not to adopt that and enshrine that as the rule for Fourth Amendment third-party uh, searches. Um, if there are no further questions, I'll say that you would distinguish in your answer to Justice Souter, this is, this is a lawyer. One room in the House is devoted is his office. Yes, sir. Our permission wouldn't extend to that room, would it? I think it would, it would have presented a much closer question, uh, and particularly given the protection of papers and the fact that you may have uh, business papers in there with attorney-client privilege. I think her authority to consent it would have presented a closer question, although um, it would still be something to look at under totality of circumstances. Um, she might have operated as a paralegal. She might have been his secretary. She might have known where he stashed his, his cocaine under a particular file. But that's not the question we have in this case. We're talking about common areas of a marital home over, over which both have equal access and control. And we would urge this Court to recognize that she, with common authority over those premises, has the ability to admit police and give consent to a search in her own right. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Dreeben. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The law of consent searches is governed by a determination of what is reasonable for the police to do in a particular circumstance. And it starts from the premise that consent is not a disfavored species in the law, that cooperation with law enforcement is a good thing and should be encouraged. The right of the co-tenant in this case to consent stems from her common authority, which is independent of his, and allows her to serve valuable social interests as well as interests that represent her own personal interest. Many of these cases arise not among couples who are harmonious, but among couples in which there is some degree of tension. And the spouse who consents in these situations has an independent interest in ensuring that she can call upon the protection of the law. I was, um, Go ahead. I, I was curious, though, which way that fact cut. I can see the argument that the closer the relationship, the more reasonable it is to say that the one party more or less recognizes that their privacy interests are held hostage to the views of the other. Uh, it's when you get the, uh, the disrupted relationship or their adverse interests that maybe the expectations of privacy um, or the reasonableness of one acting as an agent of the other becomes a little more strained. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think that the law in this area is founded on a notion of agency. It's founded on a notion of independent authority of each to grant access to the police, to cooperate with law enforcement with respect to premises over which authority is shared. And in a case like this, the wife has an independent interest in disassociating herself from criminal activity that is going on on the premises. But she can do that by advising the police, and then there's probable cause. Or if the husband's there, there are probably exigent circumstances. 
Justice Kennedy, there may well be other bases to allow law enforcement activity to go on, but that presupposes that her authority to consent is somehow qualified if the police could obtain a warrant or some other doctrine would support the search. And this Court has twice rejected exactly that approach to the analysis of consent searches. Mr. Dreeben, does does this uh, authority to uh, let someone in over over the objection of the uh, uh, cohabitant apply only to policemen? Or is it is it also the, the case that, yeah, I don't know, as a matter of, of what, property law or whatever, that when two people have common ownership of a piece of land or a house or whatever, and one of them says, I don't want a certain party to come on, the tie always goes to the other party who says, I do want somebody to come on. Is, that, is there any cases that, that establish that proposition? It seems to me an odd proposition. I would have thought the opposite. Well, the law of property, Justice Scalia, to the extent that it's relevant here, would allow any co-tenant to license his or her interest. But we have not decided Fourth Amendment issues on the basis of the law of property, have we? I quite agree, Justice Don't we O'Connor. have to look at social understanding and right to privacy? And, and how is it that you can construe in every instance a right of a co-tenant to override the expressive objections of the other co-tenant who's there and says no. How can you say that's acceptable? Well, Justice O'Connor, I certainly do not think that there is any uniform social understanding that should drive the decision in this case for two different reasons. First of all, I think in many circumstances, two people who share property and who disagree about whether a guest should be invited will resolve it in a variety of different ways. Somebody might let in a commercial visitor over the objection of a co-tenant or, or someone. That's possible, but you have a case here where the wife says come in and the husband is right there and says no, you can't. And I think that the other factor that the Court needs to consider in evaluating this is not just social expectations with respect to non-law enforcement events and visitors, but this positive, affirmative social interest in encouraging cooperation with the law which is something that she has the ability to do with respect to property over which she has common authority. Well, you keep saying that, but that policy is, can be vindicated by using doctrines other than consent. And uh, if you, you, you want us to — I, I think you want us to say, I think we have to say that there's a general social expectation that the person who wants entry overrides the person who doesn't. And, 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 and I also agree with Justice Scalia that social expectation may be in part measured by our, 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 our cases on this subject. And I, I just don't see how if it's against the interest of an occupant to allow entry, that that, that that interest must necessarily be overridden. I think that what the Court needs to do is look at the consent search doctrine in relation to third-party consents generally. Matlock makes quite clear that if the objecting, potentially objecting party, the target of the search, does not voice an objection, then the third party has full authority to allow the search, even if well, they're — Yeah, but there's kind of an assumption there that if, if the uh, co-tenant is not there, sure, you'll let the tenant who is there 
uh, call the shots. I don't think that on the facts of either Matlock or Rodriguez, that would be a particularly logical or reasonable assumption. In Matlock, you're dealing with a man who was arrested for bank robbery in the front lawn of his house. The police take him to a police car, put him in a police car, do not ask him for consent. Instead, they go back and they ask the woman with whom he's living at the house for consent to search. Rodriguez is even more dramatic because in Rodriguez, the victim of a battery, Gail Fisher, seeks out the police and says, I want you to arrest Rodriguez and brings him to the the police to the apartment where they enter and arrest Rodriguez. Surely if Rodriguez had been asked or if Matlock had been asked, the presumption is they would have objected. May I ask you two questions? It seems to me if we're using social analogies and what happens, I imagine it would make a difference if the person who wants to was invited in by, by the wife is larger or smaller than the husband. And I think he probably would not go in if he thought he was uh, could not do so in a, his physical encounter. And the problem with your case here is the police officer is always larger than the homeowner, and he always has the power to override any physical physical objection. So I think that the the actual social situation will vary tremendously from different facts as to uh, the parent. And yet we're looking for a rule that applies equally across the board in this case. And the second question I want you to address at the same time is what if this was a suitcase that they both own, they stopped in the airport. The wife says, I don't want you to open it, and their husband says, go ahead and open it, or vice versa. Well, Justice Stevens, the, the second one is the easier one. Um, the same rule applies. Anyone who has common authority over the suitcase should be able to cooperate with law enforcement to vindicate both the social interests in cooperating with a law enforcement request and the interests of the person who's making it. And I think that that's what Matlock is all about. Now, as for the attempt to mirror... Matlock is the reasonable police... Well, well, go ahead. I shouldn't interrupt. The the attempt to to transpose ordinary social understandings from a myriad of infinitely varied settings that do not involve law enforcement, I submit, will not correctly allow this Court to calibrate what it should be doing, which is balancing the individual interests in privacy against the social interests that affirmatively encourage and validate the use of consent. And I think what, what Matlock does to put this case in context is to illustrate that if the police had waited until a respondent had left his house to go to work or to go to court or to do anything else, or if he had stayed there and gone to sleep at night, then Matlock tells us that she would have full authority to allow the police into the house to conduct a search of common areas. And for this court to announce a rule that says, no, when the person is there on the scene and vocalizes an objection, which we can reasonably presume that he would have if he was given the opportunity to voice it, would mean that police simply have an incentive to find a different way to accomplish the same end. And I would submit that that does not give adequate... The different way, of course, would be to get a warrant. An option would be to get a warrant in cases where the police do have probable cause, but as this Court recognized in Schneckloff versus Bustamante, the courts, the officers will not always have probable cause. Would they, on, in, on these facts, I thought not, but perhaps I was wrong. They, when the police come to the house, they don't suspect anything about cocaine. Wife then accuses husband of being a cocaine user. So that's the first information the police have. Could they get a warrant just on 
her say so. In fact, they got the straw that had the cocaine residue on it. They went to the magistrate with that straw, and he gave them a warrant. But if they had nothing but the wife's accusation, he, he's a cocaine user, would that amount to probable cause? I think it clearly would, Justice Ginsburg. And the facts in this case, it, it, it would amount to probable cause if the, the wife who has, uh, she's in a position where she would know what's going on in the house, what kind of activity is going on in the house. She is a presumptively reliable citizen providing information to the police. And the All she said is he's a co- cocaine user. Does, does, that, does, that, does that give you probable cause to believe that there are you know, that there's contraband on the premises, or? Well, that's not all she said, Justice Scalia. What, what she said was that there were items of drug evidence yeah. in the house. And if you look at the warrant that the officers uh, obtained, it more clearly elaborates that she said there were drugs and paraphernalia. But for the Court's purposes, this case is virtually identical to Illinois uh, versus MacArthur with respect to the probable cause. You have a wife and a husband who are in a domestic dispute, and the wife comes out in Illinois versus MacArthur and tells the officers, you know, he's got drugs inside there. And the court was unanimous, I believe, on the point that that furnished probable cause. But what is different from Illinois versus MacArthur in this case is that the police officers have the consent of someone who reasonably appears to them to have common authority, someone who's living in the marital home, someone who is in a position to know what's going on and exercise her own independent authority. And for this court to say, well, there are alternatives. You know, the police could pull respondent out of the house and quarantine it while they go get a warrant. Or the police could do other investigation, or they could rely on exigent circumstances. What that does is treats her consent as worth nothing. It reduces her well, indi- not nothing, because we have cases that have said if, if the co-inhabitant is not there, he relinquishes whatever right he had to object. But if the co-inhabitant is there and says no, what's the matter with giving effect to that? I think it's very odd to say that in Matlock the right was relinquished when Matlock was arrested and taken to a police car and was never asked for consent, or that Rodriguez relinquished his right by falling asleep in his own apartment. Uh, what really — I would qualify my statement, though, in response to your comment, Justice O'Connor. It's not that it treats it as nothing. It would treat her consent as 100 percent valid when he's asleep or absent, no matter how much we know he would object. And it would treat it as zero when he's on the scene and vocalizes an objection. And I think that that would protect Fourth Amendment rights only by happenstance, or worse, it would simply be an invitation to the police. Well, pool. but it's by happenstance that the police find the wife in the house. I mean, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's a happenstance. Well, in this case, as in many other cases involving uh, this kind of potential incident, the wife called the police to the scene. So there was a reason for them to be on the scene. It was a perfectly valid investigatory step. And once they acquired the information relating to drugs on the premises and had the authority of someone who's in charge of the premises, I submit that the police should be able to conduct the search as a reasonable matter under the Fourth Amendment, just as they would if a respondent had been asleep or if a respondent had said, well, I have to go now, am I free to go, and the police said that you are. And I don't think that it always would be an advantage for the non-consenting tenant, somebody like 
uh, Mr. Randolph to insist on the police getting a warrant or conducting a probable cause arrest. If he's arrested, he's taken down to the station. He has a search incident to arrest. He may not get a hearing for 48 hours. If the police do have to get a warrant, they are entitled to search anywhere and everywhere in the premises, whereas in this case, one of respondents' main claims is that she wasn't credible. Well, if she wasn't credible and she had led the police upstairs and the police had found nothing, that might have been the end of the whole incident. And I think that it's because of the socially valuable function of efficiently resolving accusations, potentially dueling accusations of criminal conduct, that consent searches can facilitate that this Court has said that consent searches are a positive social good and should be encouraged rather than discouraged. Mr. Dreeben. Is, it, is this case materially different if she simply ran upstairs, grabbed the straw, brought it down, and handed it to the police officer? It's, in effect, the same thing, isn't it? It is, in effect, the same thing. And I think that had that happened, there would have been no question that, assuming that the police reasonably believed that she had authority to do it, and possibly even if they didn't, uh, the contraband would have come into the hands of law enforcement and there is really no reason or doctrine under the Fourth Amendment to deny it. You want us to take the position that there's no legal difference between, A, entering a home and taking something, and, B, receiving it on the outside? I think that the difference when you receive something with the consent of someone who has the authority to exercise control over it is a question of whether she leads the police upstairs or whether she brings the item downstairs. And for Fourth Amendment purposes, I don't see a difference. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Dreeben. Mr. Goldstein? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court should hold that it is not reasonable for officers to conduct a consent search when a person with an equivalent interest in the premises expressly objects. What about the uh, a telephone call between a husband and a wife, and the wife tells the police, listen in on this call. She's consented to the monitoring of the conversation. The husband has not. Maybe he even begins the call by saying, I, don't let anybody else listen to this. It's clear that that is admissible, isn't it? It is, Mr. Chief Justice, although not on the theory of third-party consent. The analog to your hypothetical, which is this Court's decision in Lopez, is Justice Thomas's reference uh, to Coolidge versus uh, New Hampshire, uh, to, to the New Hampshire case. And what happens there is this uh, Mrs. Randolph could take the cocaine and give it to the officer. She was participating in giving an item to them. It is not the same, I think, when she authorizes the police to conduct a generalized search of the premises. It would be as if — Consenting. It's an intrusion in the one case on the conversation, in the other case on the home. In, in the telephone case, it's recognized in the law. The consent of one party uh, subjects the other to having the conversation uh, monitored. In this case, the consent of one party subjects the other party to the search. But, Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. I, I do think that Lopez and White in that line of cases establish that other things that people do consent to can expose us to intrusions on our property. What I think, however, is it doesn't follow that she can authorize the con them to conduct a generalized search of the premises. It's as if she were saying, you can listen on, on well, all the phone calls in the me. house. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a search only of premises with respect to which she had supposedly common rights. I mean, we take the case on that assumption. 
You do, if, Justice. If she and her husband, you know, if, if she had a right to be in only two rooms, she couldn't authorize the search of the whole house, right? That is okay. correct. But, Justice Souter, I think the thing that is important, and I want to get to your line of questioning about exactly what the nature of the State's argument is, is that he had a distinct individual right to privacy at the core of the home as opposed to, for example, information All right. Well, that begs the question. It begs the question to say it's a distinct individual right to privacy. It's a little uh, academic to talk about his individual right to privacy when he's sharing the home with someone else. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that's why I finished off, and I, let me just focus on the important part of my statement, and that is we are talking about a search of the home at the core of the Fourth Amendment. This Court's doctrines are quite different about situations in which you share information with third parties. Let me step back and, and do the case before Lopez and then explain how it was extended to Lopez. Cases like White say if you give information to someone else, you, they can give it to the police without conducting a search of you. This is a very different situation. The police are clearly conducting a search of a premises that I think, Justice Souter, it has to be agreed he has a reasonable expectation of privacy with respect to. Now, Justice Souter, it is absolutely right that there are instances in which I, people have expectations of privacy, and yet searches occur notwithstanding those. And there is an argument to be made here that says, look, he has a reasonable expectation of privacy, but the police came in for a different reason. That would be true, for example, if there was a warrant, they would come in notwithstanding his reasonable expectation. That would be true if there were exigent circumstances. But the theory of consent is very different. Schneckloff, Zapp, all of the court's press. Well, let let me make sure I understand where you're going. We, we, we agree that, uh, that he had a reason, everybody agrees, I guess, that he has reasonable expectation, he can, he can raise his Fourth Amendment claim. Your argument is that even though we, we get past the reasonable expectation, there's a second reasonableness question, and that is, is the search itself reasonable? And yes. that's the focus of your argument. Exactly right. right. Okay. But I do think it's important, of course, this Court's precedents have often said that the degree of the expectation informs the reasonableness of the search. A consent search is reasonable. Re- reasonableness, of but, course, is a, a balance. Well, the they, words they, that keep going around in my mind, it's her house, too, isn't it? Yes. Well, she wants the policeman in. So why does he have more of a right to keep the policeman out than she has to have the policeman in. I think everybody makes their — And vice versa. Yes, I think that right. that's the point, is that that, that everybody makes some sac- — uh, there are two things. Everybody uh, makes some sacrifices. sacrifices. That's so let's right. think and so of the need for this, because it's right. the other thing that's right. on my mind. The two words that came into my mind are spousal abuse. All right? I would say maybe there's a pretty good need for this. The husband's beating her up, and there isn't evidence of that. But she's sitting in the kitchen table, and the neighbors hear something odd. And they call the police. We better look into it. They come to the door. She says, um, hmm, oh, uh, I'd like, officer, for you to just come upstairs to my bedroom for a minute. Is there any neighbor, friend, or policeman in those circumstances who wouldn't go? Justice Breyer, because she's not authorizing a search, she wants them to come in and talk to her wherever in the house, that might be a different case. The two words... Oh, no. It's the question of the rule. I haven't seen anything on your side that would advocate a rule that would not prevent the many, 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 I believe, I am not an expert, ambiguous cases of domestic spousal abuse from being investigated by the policeman. 
and maybe you can tell me you've looked into it empirically and I'm wrong, and that's why I'm bringing it up. Yes. Okay. I have and I, I can. Since 1974, when this Court decided Matlock, the Federal and State Courts combined have considered this question, and so there was a, a finding of evidence, and it led to a suppression hearing. That's the best that I can do. Fifteen times. All the Federal and State Courts once every two years. It is the case that in that in last year alone, there were 200,000 domestic disputes that were reported, but that's just the city of Chicago. What we're considering here is the situation in which there is no real need for the police. No, no, but no, I, I'm not getting your answer. Are you telling me that it is the law in Chicago, for example, that if a policeman responds to a call, a call of, it's ambiguous, what it says is an anonymous caller said there's an odd situation next door where you check out 2355 Maple Street. He goes there, the wife looks a little oddly at him. But they're sitting at the table, and she says, Officer, I'd like you to come upstairs with me. The husband says no. Are you saying that the law is clear in Chicago that the policeman can't do it? No. What I'm saying — Where is it clear that the policeman cannot do it? Well, Your Honor, it is an unresolved question of this Court. That's why I thought it was not clear. And therefore, what I'm asking you for is, if your — is the law — Yes. There are 200,000 cases a year in Chicago alone. I think that there might be many ambiguous cases. So you relieve me of my concern that if you win this case in those ambiguous situations where the wife wants the policeman in and she's afraid to tell him why until she gets him up to the room, she wants him in. And he, now under your rule, as far as I can see, could not go in, and I'm telling you quite frankly, that's what bothers me a lot. All right. Let me answer this on several different levels. First, there is no serious argument that we interfere with investigating abuse claims. The conversation can happen. It may not happen, arguably, in a place that he has a right to privacy, but it can happen outside. It happens outside all the time. If there is any suggestion that a reasonable officer would believe that there was an ongoing crime, there was abuse going on right then, then it's clear that exigent circumstances would authorize the — There aren't exigent circumstances. In the case I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of what I call ambiguity. And there are many such cases, I believe, of spousal abuse where the wife is intimidated. Now, maybe I'm wrong on my facts, but those are the cases I'm worried about. Justice Breyer, I'm not an expert in spousal abuse, and so I'm not — which I think is a very serious issue. I do know one thing about my rule, and that is that under our rule and under the rule that the Georgia Supreme Court articulated, they are allowed to speak with her, including speaking to her outside. It's true. There may be some sacrifice, and you have identified a sacrifice, and that is she can't take them into a room in which he has a constitutional expectation of privacy. I will concede that if he says, I don't want you in the bedroom, that will be a sacrifice. But what I am saying is that there is no serious argument that they can't have the conversation in a place where she feels secure. That's on the porch. That's in a police car. If she says, I need uh, you to come up and there's been abuse, then what would have happened in this case? Let me explain what happened in this case. The officers asked Mr. Randolph first. He said no. They found out, had found out from her that there was drug paraphernalia on the premises. What they had to do in order to conduct this search, if they wanted to search rather than having her bring the materials out, 
is to pick up the phone and get a telephonic warrant, which would have taken less than five minutes. The real reason I, I bring to your attention the 200,000 domestic disturbances is that what you should be concerned about, I think, is not the 15 cases, which is not a serious intrusion on law enforcement interests over 30 years, but it's the many times in which our family relationships ebb and flow. We are concerned here with the person the Fourth Amendment is, is not the person who has the drugs or the abuser. Consent searches involve a situation in which the police come to the door and they say, can we search? Because they, they do as much as they're, they're permitted to do. And the person just says, sure, perhaps completely ignorant of her rights. There's no reason to believe anything's going on. And what the state's position is, is that despite the fact that this is the home and at the core of the constitutional right to privacy in the text of the Fourth Amendment, is that the only thing he can do to be secure in the language of the Constitution is not live with someone else. Remember, the theory All that was your, your the Go on. As you say, it just reflects the expectation of privacy. And when you do live with someone else, you compromise your individual privacy interest to that extent. We know that you compromise it to the extent that if you happen not to be there and that person says, sure, come on in and search, that's going to bind you as well. Why, is it, why do you not comp- compromise the expectation to the extent of giving the other person the right to consent? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I do think you've put your finger on it. And I just want to say, Justice Souter, that I do think that the other side's argument inevitably does revolve around this notion of an expectation of privacy. And, Mr. Chief Justice, I think the expectation is, and this is what the Court said in Minnesota versus Carter, that while it's technically possible that the people — Minnesota versus Olson, I'm sorry — the people that we live with will admit others over our objection, our expectation about about what will happen, our reasonable expectation is different. And I also want to take But Olson was a standing case. Olson was not confronting this situation. In Olson, uh, the, the police simply went in with, without a warrant. And the argument was made that this person was not the normal uh, inhabitant of the house. What was he, a house guest or something of the sort? Uh, and the only issue that Olson addressed was his right to raise a Fourth Amendment claim. It did not respond to the issue that you're raising, which is the reasonable extent of search. Justice Souter, that's why I sort of paused and came to you, and that is I do think that the other side's argument — I want to say two things. One is that it inevitably reduces to the idea that we have a lessened expectation of privacy. I, I, don't, I don't see that okay. at all. They well, can see okay. the only expectation of privacy you've got to have for Fourth Amendment purposes in order to raise a claim uh, is, is a minimal one. They concede that, they, that this individual has an expectation of privacy sufficient to raise a Fourth Amendment claim. But Their argument is that although he can raise it, the rights however they may be derived, on the part of his wife, allowed her to admit the police, in effect, thwarting his expectation. Your argument, as I understand it, is that when the police search with that kind of permission over his objection, it's not a reasonable search. Isn't that the way to structure the issue? Justice Souter, I think it is. I will only say in my defense that their brief articulates it in the manner that I was describing it, I think, with the Chief Justice. But let me now — I I, I agree with you. There is this talk about lessened expectation, and I I think ultimately that's irrelevant. Let me look at it through the other lens, and that is from the perspective of a reasonable police officer, I think there are two points to make. The first is — The common ground between the sides in the case is you look at it from the perspective of the person who arrives at the house, and you ask, what is reasonable? And if someone arrives at the house, it is a different matter entirely if, as in Matlock or in Rodriguez, someone says, come on in, 
and that you believe they have authority over the premises, versus you come to the house and someone with authority over the premises says, come on in, and the other person says, no, stay out. Okay. Well, that's now, a fair reading of Rodriguez. There it was, come on in, he's asleep. That it was quite clear that if he were awake, he was going to say, don't come in. Mr. Chief Justice, the government has argued successfully in this court that we don't make any assumptions about whether people will consent or not. There are innumerable cases in the lower courts. Well, maybe, maybe we don't, but isn't there, isn't the government, isn't Mr. Dreeben's argument fair that no one in his right mind would have expected Matlock to agree to this? It is clear that Matlock, had he known what was going on, and he may have, I don't know, would have objected. So that if we accept your argument that the presence of the person there expressing an objection is what makes the difference, then, then Matlock and Rodriguez become almost silly cases. They're, 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 they're cases that rest upon an assumption that is clearly contrary to fact. No, Justice Souter, and that is the government has argued, and this Court has accepted again, and this is a different point, and that is you have to have a clear line for police officers that is administrable. And the line that is reflected in Matlock and Rodriguez is, if you get consent to come into the House from someone who has the common authority to do so, that will be sufficient. But that doesn't mean that if some — and so you don't have to go around and finding other people and asking other people. It's just as if you showed up at a house and you were invited in. You wouldn't say, well, let me check with everybody else. Sure, but an equally clear line would simply be uh, that if the area to be searched is one of common tenancy or occupation or whatnot, uh, the, the only consent that will suffice will be the consent of the person against whom you expect to use any evidence found. E easy, clear line. It, it's true, Justice Souter, there are a lot of possible clear lines. What I'm describing to you is why the difference between Matlock and this case is one in kind, and that is that Matlock, I think, reflects an administrable rule, and that is if you do have permission from someone who has the authority to admit you, you don't have to go ask anybody else. But okay, but an, an equally administrable rule here is that even though the person uh, you, you suspect, suspect uh, objects, you can still go in if a person with authority otherwise says you can. Uh, equally clear rule, and it has one advantage. It does not turn Matlock and Rodriguez into silly cases. Justice Souter, I don't think they're silly cases. I think that it is an important rule that the police show up and they are able to rely, uh, if they only hear from one person, they're able to rely on that person. I don't th I'm not claiming that our rule has great administrative advantages over the other sides. What I'm saying is that it is not necessary to sacrifice the individual's privacy who lives in the House, as you say, has an expectation of privacy. And so let me return. An expectation of privacy. I have a lingering question here I'd like to get your view on. I don't know what the expectation is, is my problem. If I think of social — I've never been in a situation, frankly, where one person said stay out and the other said come in, so I don't know what I'd do. If I imagine myself in a normal social situation, I think probably if I'm the typical person, which — May or may not be. I, I think I'd, I'd say, well, you know, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with this. If it's a dinner party, forget it. But if I'm in a situation such as the police might be involved in, where I think there's some danger, there's something wrong in the house, there's something odd about it, 
I don't think the average person would just say, I'm going away. I think the average person either would come in or he'd say, I'll come in for a while, I'm going to call the police, or there, you just wouldn't have that reaction, I want nothing to do with it. That's the reaction, you know, uh, that's a bad reaction, you want nothing to do with a dangerous situation. So, so I think in that situation, the normal reaction would be, I'm going in, or, or I'm going to get some help, or I'm going to get a friend. Uh, or I'm going to call the police. So I don't know you do have expectations of that kind in those situations, though you might with a dinner party. Justice Breyer, I think that's why it's important that our rule is not that the police should go away. We call for a balance here. And but I, might, I want you to address the question of how the legal category of reasonable expectation of privacy fits in with what I just said, where I'm assuming in some social situations you do think you'd be left alone. But in the typical situation, stretching well beyond, but certainly including, situations of danger where the police might be involved, you wouldn't have an expectation that you will be left alone. I want to know how those facts, if they are facts, and you can say they were not, fit within the category called reasonable expectation of privacy. Justice Breyer, the Court has precedent on this very point, and that is, and Justice Souter, he is asking about reasonable expectations of privacy, Minnesota versus Olson. The Court considered this and said the very reason that person had standing uh, and could have had a Fourth Amendment right is because they did have a reasonable expectation of, pri- of privacy in the premises, that even though they had no property rights to keep any — this is the overnight guest — had no property rights to keep anybody out at all, their expectation, their reasonable expectation of privacy for Fourth Amendment purposes is that if somebody wanted to come in to which they objected, that objection would be honored. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that our position is the balance, and that is we don't tell the police to go away. We say, look, if she tells you that there's contraband in the house, she can bring it out. That's the Coolidge case. And I do think, Justice Thomas, that there is a difference in kind, not degree, in giving something to someone and then having uh, — versus having a un, uh, uh, uncabined search of a house. The, the, the complaint the, — the, But this was not an uncabined search. That's my problem. What you're — what you're at bottom you're saying to us is that it's not unreasonable, an unreasonable search if she went upstairs and brought the straw down. Yes, because that's not a search. Okay, but you're saying it is an unreasonable search for her to lead the police officer to the straw, Uh, which is what she did. Uh, Justice Thomas, it's how it played out because they stopped the search then because she withdrew her consent. But what she authorized was something very different. But she she withdrew it after he observed the straw. (laughs) Yes, Justice Thomas, that's absolutely correct. My point instead is that what happened here in terms of the consent and what the state's rule of law would authorize and what Matlock and Rodriguez authorize, if they're extended to this point, is not take me to the drugs, which is an interesting proposition, but instead go ahead and search the whole house. So our point, Justice Breyer, is look, don't leave. Get a telephonic warrant. It takes five minutes. If you know there's something in the house, bring it out. If you have anything to any reason to believe there's ongoing criminality, seal the house. Remember- no, no, any, any reason to, to believe. Uh, Sorry. You, you can't enter without probable cause, and that's a, a, with exigent circumstances. Yes. Suppose you have uh, suspicions of a domestic problem that's ongoing. Uh, it's, it's short of probable cause, but you have reasonable suspicion. Does that alter the uh, non-consenting party's interest and elevate the consenting party's interest? Justice Kennedy, I don't think that it does. Our view of the law 
is that the question is when the property rights are — and their, their control over the property, I should say. I don't mean to invoke the common law. When the control over the property is equivalent, then in that tie, if you will, the Fourth Amendment controls. If there are doctrines designed to protect against situations in which you have concerns about ongoing criminality and protecting people. But you talk about that tie. Uh, your approach applies in the case a dormitory. You have a common room. You're ten rooms off of it. Nine people say, sure, come on in and search. And the one person says no. That one person exercises a veto over a search of the common area? Mr. Chief Justice, the the straightforward rule that I have argued for today is that if you have an equivalent interest in the premises, it is, of course, the state's rule that if nine people object, Matlock says that any one of them can let them in and an individual can override the objections of everybody else in the House. What I'm saying, I think, just to return to the basics, is I do But, but what is your answer sorry. to that case? Your case is that if one out of ten who share the common room says to the police, you may not come in, that controls? I, I don't think that has to follow from our rule. It's true. We have articulated one broad rule that would allow the Fourth Amendment to control. But I think if we analogize to the social situation, if you said to yourself, what do you expect will happen if nine people that you live with want to let in someone? and you're the only one who's going to object. I think it would be perfectly reasonable to say to that individual expects the per- them to come in. Justice Souter, let me return. I, I want to make sure. I, I just simply got, there goes the, that, there goes any bright line administrable rule. Justice Souter, I, I, I honestly don't think that's true. I, I think that, Il, that Illinois versus Rodriguez on this question, which is assessing the degree of the authority over the premises, does call for a totality of the circumstances inquiry. I also don't know that I fully answered your point that we look at this question from the perspective of the officer and the reasonableness of the search. And let me just say that in Matlock and in Rodriguez, the Court's analysis was that it's reasonable because the person whose privacy is intruded on has assumed some risk. The, the Court does look to the privacy interest of the person who is ultimately the defendant. That's an element of the reasonableness inquiry. And our point fundamentally is that it cannot be the case that when the framers enacted the Fourth Amendment so that you could live with other people and have a private space away from the government, that you merely by living with your family assume the risk that your privacy will be lost. That assumption of the risk... So can I just take the next step in my hypothetical? The, the wife and the two, two adult children who live in the home say, come on in, and the, and the husband says no. What happens then? On our broadest rule, the husband would control, although it doesn't follow from our... That to affirm the judgment, you have to say that, because I think you could say that reasonably the person realizes they would be outvoted. But I do think the children is an important point. Reasonably the person realizes he would be outvoted? Yes. So it does go to his presumably objectively reasonable views of what nature of privacy he has. Yes. And so if he thinks, look, I've been having a bad time with my wife, I think she's going to consent and let the police in. If I'm not, then his, his objection shouldn't control? Mr. Chief Justice, when I agree with you objectively, this Court didn't, for example, in Matlock and Rodriguez, look at the particular fi- family dynamics at that time. It looks to broader social understandings. I, I did want to return to your your children's point. Remember, and I think this is a vital point, and that is the courts of appeals uniformly conclude after Matlock and Rodriguez that children are residents, which is the inquiry in, in Illinois versus Rodriguez, and they can give consent to search a home. 
It necessarily follows that if you extend that rule, Matlock and Rodriguez, to this case, that children, because they have the authority to admit the police, minor children, 12, 14, 15, can then authorize a search notwithstanding the objection of the parents. Now, if, if everyone agrees that can't be right, it's the parents' home, that's because we are assessing. What is the case that says that, that the, the, the child's invitation overrides the parents' objection? Justice Ginsburg, that question hasn't been confronted by any court we've checked. But what, I, what the courts of appeals have confronted repeatedly and uniformly agree, and it's in our brief, is that children satisfy the Matlock and Rodriguez. So would a mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> But they don't have the same — they don't have the same property interest as a spouse does, as a tenant in common or whatever. The child doesn't have that interest in the home. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that's right. But, of course, that's not the inquiry under Matlock and Rodriguez. If, if we take your point, then we are definitely moving beyond Matlock and Rodriguez. We're going to have to look to more. And my point is that if we do look to more, then simply the fact that the officers have found someone, however ignorant, has the ability to uh, consent in their own right. If we're going to assess the other factors, the rule should look, the court should look to what the ordinary social understandings and expectations. Well, your time is almost up, but I want to know if you place any weight at all on the fact that the husband was the target in this case. The target said no, and the one who wasn't under suspicion said yes. Does that make any difference? Uh, the, I do not believe as a matter of doctrine that it does. I do think, however, that it informs this Court's analysis of reasonableness in the sense that the Court in Schneckloth said we are not going to allow consent to circumvent uh, the requirements of getting a warrant. And it is the case, we, we have to inescapably agree, I think, that this is simply a way of getting around the warrant requirement. They wanted to find out something about him he had a privacy interest in the premises. He said no. The Constitution says, you have somebody who's cooperating with you. Let them tell you what's going on in the House. And Illinois versus MacArthur says, seal off the premises. In fact, Illinois versus MacArthur is the very point of the court in that case was that it's much better to seal the premises and get a warrant, which will define the Is there anybody in that case who, uh, since I wrote it, I guess I'm supposed to know it in detail. <laughs> I don't. And I thought was there was no one, no consent there. There was nobody giving consent. Oh, uh, Justice, there? Uh, Justice Breyer, she said, I think you should, she said. I'll reread it. <laughs> okay. She said, I think you should go in there and get it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but inescapably, what's going on there, I think that this is not a case that follows necessarily from uh, Matlock and Rodriguez, and there is a bright line to be drawn, and that is you are going to have to not live with your family, which is precisely what the Fourth Amendment is about, in order not to assume the risk of the police coming in. The reasonable dis determination is a balancing of law enforcement and privacy interests. The privacy interests are very high. The police can easily get a telephonic warrant or have the materials brought out to them. It is not necessary to take this case when so rarely has it been that the police have needed to use this authority, if there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Goldstein. Ms. Smith, you have a minute and a half remaining. No rebuttal, Your Honor. Case is submitted. Thank you.